Welcome to Aspire, Arch Street Public Radio, broadcasting interviews from our international Innovate podcast series, giving voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders and organizations within the nonprofit, education, culture, philanthropy, and social entrepreneurship sectors. Here's your host, Robert Rim. It seems hard to believe that in our age, there are over 2 billion people around the world who don't have access to safe water. Even more distressing is that 4.5 billion people lack access to adequate sanitation. It's estimated that some 842,000 people die each year from diarrhea as a result of unsafe drinking water sanitation and hand hygiene. We'll talk about all things water with our guest, Eleanor Allen, a world-leading water expert who's dedicated to helping billions of people access safe and sustainable water and sanitation services needed to save lives, stay healthy, find jobs, and thrive. She's also the co-founder of Water for People, a global nonprofit working in nine countries to achieve success to quality water and sanitation services. Eleanor, welcome to Innovate. Thank you, Robert. Happy to be here. Was water always something that you were aware of, that you paid attention to, that you cared about? Yes, it's always been part of my life. I think in the beginning, not consciously, I grew up in Michigan, Great Lakes State, a lake between two of the Great Lakes, Lake St. Clair, about a block away, coincidentally a block away from the local water treatment plant. So uh, I was always around water. And um, I'm not sure if that influenced me, but my mother is convinced it did, how I chose my path into civil engineering and then specifically choosing water quality is my favorite thing. I have not looked back since. And yours is really a, a fascinating personal story. You served in the Peace Corps, became a civil engineer, worked around the globe, and are now the CEO of Water for People. Uh, talk about how your life's path seems to have really uniquely positioned you to take on the challenge of bringing clean water to everyone. One Correction to what, something you said earlier, I'm not the co-founder of, of Water for People. I'm actually the fifth CEO. Okay. But what's interesting is about the founder, or I guess he was the co-founder, Ken Miller. He worked for the company that I grew up in as, a, as an engineer. The company is called CH2M Hill, then later CH2M and is now part of Jacobs. So when I was a young engineer, kind of getting my stripes in design engineering, Ken Miller was kind of a, a force in the in the firm, and he talked a lot about Water for People, this thing on, on, that he really believed in, which was taking knowledge from the water sector in the U.S. and helping others. So I really was drawn to service my whole life. And I mean, Peace Corps is one example, but I also was post-Peace Corps when I was working in engineering. I was one of the earlier volunteers for Water for People. So I've known Water for People my whole career, basically, as a water engineer. When I worked my way up through engineering, it was like small tests to projects to major programs of capital. And my era was really water wastewater treatment. So if you can imagine if it's the city of Denver, we'd have contracts that would do the capital improvements for the water wastewater systems, the collection distribution, but also treatment plants and environmental impacts of the new construction, and then worked into operations and running businesses. I had run Latin America business, and then I went to a competitor and ran Global Water and I realized I was super far away from any project or any technical work. It was, you know, into the the management and all the kind of internal things. And I never thought I would work for a nonprofit. I never considered working for Water for People, but I saw the, the ad on LinkedIn for the CEO of Water for People. Oh. And I thought, oh yeah, my gosh, this yeah. is my this is my calling. I'm 
I'm taking this door and walking through it. Because I was already living in Denver. I knew water for people like I had from my past, but I knew at that time people on the board and a few people who worked here. And um, I just put my, my resume in. My husband's like, you're having a midlife crisis. You're, you're a consultant. You don't know anything about nonprofit. You know, take some time off. Sit on the couch. It's okay. You're, well, you're crazy. You're, this is not your space. And I said, I don't know. It's water. It's, uh, you know, it was wastewater then, but sanitation now, because we're not working with sewers, but it's the same problem. And I, I want to get back to, like, actually doing something that has an impact. And if I'm going to work for a nonprofit, I'm going to work for the one I already love. So total opportunistic move, and I got the job. It's really quite something, isn't it, Eleanor, how we see an ad on LinkedIn or any one of a thousand different events that literally change our lives. Yeah, that was a major pivot point for me. Indeed. And tell us about, you know, you talked about uh, your work in the private sector. Tell us about bringing that private sector mentality to a nonprofit like Water for People. Yeah, so it's interesting coming in to something you think you know as an outsider. You come in and you think, oh, wow, I really don't know. First, there's different words for things that after a while you're like, oh, I know what that is. It's just a different word like um, sanitation and wastewater or like we talk about systems change and in consulting, it would just be about utility management and s- silly things like that. So once I kind of figured out, oh, this is actually the same ingredients of the work I already know. It's just lots and lots of small systems that roll up to larger governance structures and to we're creating utilities instead of working for large utilities. And my experience was all urban except for Peace Corps was more rural. So I kind of get the lay of the land and then visit all our programs a few times and start realizing, oh, how do we know that we're actually doing what we say we're doing? And our, our model is long-term and fairly complex because it'll take us five to 10 years to get to a whole geographic area. So they have not only water service, but the service that keeps on going. So we call it everyone forever, service to everyone that lasts forever, which requires more of the soft skills and the ut- operation and maintenance training and the utility creation and things like that. And so we started one at a time developing tools internally to monitor our own progress. Examples like developing a five-year strategy. There had been strategies, but nothing, nothing that was actually a strategic plan with goals and key performance indicators. So we started that. We have, we're now in the middle of 2017 to 2021 strategy. So our strategic goals we developed are proof and scale and global leadership and most of that everyone forever model was what we were doing at the time in 2017. And like, then we added in these elements, how do we leverage that and scale it to other areas that we were not working in today or to national governments to help whole countries get services to their entire populations that, that last forever. So strategy was one, um, developing a balanced scorecard to monitor our own progress and quarterly goals quarterly webinar with all employees. We're about 200 people, but there's no really way to have that global community. Performance management of talent, something that was so routine to me, and we didn't have a system to really have personal goal setting and linking to that to the strategy and the balance scorecard and then knowing how we're doing as individuals. So little little things that seemed basic and normal, we, we didn't have those tools, but we've developed them over time. And I, I'm really proud of our people and what we've done. And like, we get a lot done with 200 people. It's pretty amazing place. And one thing that I found 
different than my previous life in the private sector was that really people come because they're super mission driven. And that is priority number one. And we see this reflected in employee engagement survey as well. And really using those results come for the mission and then other things fall in place. And you want to work on a team that is high performing and you want to work on a team that is making impact and a model you believe in. So all those things are really galvanizing at, a, at an organization like Water for People, where I hadn't felt that cohesion before, even though my thread of water and wastewater sanitation is consistent, it's just that is one difference that I felt on the nonprofit side. So I, I love pulling the best of all things together that I know and trying to make us even better. And I guess that's my job, but I feel I take that very seriously, trying to be, make us the best we can be. And all of these things were part of the model that shifted to be much more comprehensive in 2010, aren't they? That was a um, kind of coming of age of Water for People about 2010. Prior to that was the Water for People I actually knew, like the volunteer corps. We had hundreds of volunteers. We were working in, at one time in 40 countries doing little projects and generally the older school model, you send the volunteers, you find a somebody you know somebody, like a rotary club or a church or a sister something and you go do a um, a well you build it with volunteers you take the pictures you go home well we did our own self-assessment like one we didn't know if some of those things the water systems were running and two we definitely didn't set up any type of sustainable model we didn't train anybody and so that got entirely blown up and said moving forward we have to really focus on level of service and that requires uh, local employees, that requires understanding the local context, political will of local government, and capacity building and behavior change that takes time because that's all people. And that's, that is why we're in the situation, coincidentally, globally, thinking back to your original statistics. I mean, two billion people, it's not, this, not a technology issue for water. It is very much a political will and investment and really wanting people having that leadership to keep systems running. And where there is that political will, like in the U.S. as an example, that was core to the development of this country, mostly driven by business, which is fine. That's a lot of countries. But there was that feeling that we, we have to have this foundation before we can build our economy. So we went, we divested from 40 countries down to the nine we're in based mostly on political will, where we thought we could be successful with this long-term program. And in, in the beginning, our, our few employees who were hired to start these programs, Everyone Forever, it was a movement at that time. People laughed at them. So, what are you crazy? You can't take on a whole like geography, think like a county size, and you know, do master plan, figure out who has service, who doesn't, who has bad service, and then put together the designs and the investments to get everybody high quality service, but also build these, these little utilities to keep the services running. And that's crazy. No, not, nobody does that. No, it's government's job, but they haven't gotten to it yet. And nonprofits definitely don't do that. But now fast forward to today, nine years later, we're getting close to serving 4 million people with that model. And we're, we're like this, it's like a servant leadership model. We're the backbone and our real proof of success is standing up these, we call them water and sanitation offices and training people to keep the systems running and making sure they have they set the right rate so people actually pay for service, that they can get the supply chains set for spare parts, that people can rely on their service and it's safe water, and they have sanitation services, nice toilets, and they either have the latrine pits or their septic tanks. They can get those emptied. 
So that whole shift is really now kind of we have all the proof points because many of these districts, we've gotten to the past not only getting coverage, but getting to sustainable levels of service. And so now we're transitioning out. Actually, 2018 was a big year for us because we're transitioning out of San Pedro, Bolivia. And now we're kind of on standby. They're running on their own and uh, we're moving on to other places. So this next few years are going to be really big as well as we start transitioning to new districts and people uh, will we'll watch those districts have those sustainable services on their own without, without investment from us or other aid agencies. And um, we call it aid independence. They're, they're, they're doing it. And so that is really the mo- moment we're in now where we can say it actually works. But it took us eight years, seven years to get here. Yeah, it's great to see that so many are, in fact, doing it. And I'm thinking while you're talking about how many of us take clean, accessible water and sanitation for granted. But given the the billions of people around the world who don't have access to safe water and lack access to adequate sanitation, you mentioned political will, Eleanor. What are some of the other obstacles preventing people from obtaining clean, accessible water? And, And how is it that some groups have been clearly left behind? It's complicated because it deals with people, but I think a couple things that are pretty critical to success. First, the political will. And if you take some, if you look at countries like the U.S., it happened quite a while ago, but some more recent examples like Singapore is one that's quite famous where where the um, prime minister said, we're going to get this done. This is one of our top priorities we're going to get. And and they went so far that they actually reuse every drop of water in in, uh, Singapore. South Korea had a huge accelerated movement over a few short few decades to get to full services. And then there are other countries coming on. So if we look at the countries where we're working in now, we've actually picked four of our nine. So in our case, the four that we picked, Uganda, Rwanda, Bolivia, and Peru, where we feel there's sufficient political will at the national level that those presidents have made water and sanitation for all a priority for their countries. And then that sets the stage for all the other elements, for getting regulation and policies in place, for getting financing mechanisms for the capital building of the infrastructure, but also to build these, keep these um, services going, the utilities, getting the right rates, protecting water resources. All those elements have to come into place too, which we do in our model at the district level, but rolling up to the national level. And then there's this other guiding force right now, this is the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Well, number six is sustainable water and sanitation for all. What's interesting is that all countries signed those goals at their commitment to 17 goals by 2030, water being one. I mean, there's no way every country can afford or do all these things in the, in the SDGs. But I do believe that some countries, and we're putting our chips on these four, are going to get there faster and maybe even by 2030, especially for water, because they've set up these real things like regulations. Peru has 2021 set for water. Um, Bolivia's water for all Bolivians right before 2030. So that's a huge part of it. The countries where you see are left behind, they're missing that political drive and that understanding at the, the president's level that this is what we need to get our country to move ahead. Because once there's the political will, you figure out how to finance that infrastructure. But the people that have never had services, I mean, imagine if you don't know the difference. And we call it self-supply. You go to the creek every day. You don't know anything different. It's hard to demand a change when you don't know difference. When you don't know difference, yeah. Yeah. 
but it's there's and then you also you're probably a subsistence farmer your time doesn't have that much value you kind of like that's your life but where we do see the shift in not only the top-down political will but the bottoms up the community we call these community forces where people start to go somewhere or they see a neighboring district or they somehow know that their life can be different and they start realizing wow if i actually had my time back from going to the creek or my kids did the my kids can go to school. If the school actually had toilets, my girls would stay in school through middle school when they get their periods. Oh my gosh, my our life could really change. Then I'd have more time to go to make some money either on my plot of land or selling something at the market because I have that time and that ability. My family's healthy instead of sick. Then you start getting that drive and that community starts demanding change. And so that then the dots start to link. If the community's demanding change, the mayor is enlightened mayor is critical to this model, which is our model to work. An enlightened mayor will figure out how to, to make water part of their platform because that's a sign of economic development as well for their municipality. And then you put all the pieces together and actually once you turn that over and it's, people don't go back to self-supply because they have that utility in place that keeps the operation and maintenance of the system, then life changes forever in those communities. And our communities. I mean, it happened long before we remember, but it's the same steps. So it's the two parts. So, Robert, if you imagine the political will above for the president, then you imagine the, at the localist community level, once they start to understand that they can actually drive some change and they have will, political will of that mayor, then that can also drive the change. So we try to find places where all those elements are there in some way, shape, or form, because then we can be successful. If we don't have those elements, we can't create political will. We're, we're, like a, we're like a tool, we're like a resource, but we can't succeed if those elements aren't in place. And now, a word from Arch Street Press. Still the Promised Land by Natwar Gandhi. Natwar Gandhi began life in a dusty Indian village that had no paved streets, no electricity, no telephone, and no running water. When he was 17, his father put him on a train to Mumbai in hopes that he might find work and send money home to help support the family. In Mumbai, he barely made a living, but through countless long days of work, relentless determination, and good luck, he was able to take a plane to New York at the age of 25, where he landed with $7 in his pocket. Still, The Promised Land is the fascinating and deeply personal story of how an impoverished immigrant made his way to the new world, remade his life, and ultimately became the chief financial officer of Washington, D.C., playing a key role in transforming the nation's capital from a near-bankrupt municipality into a financially healthy major American city. Gandhi's life is both cautionary and instructive, difficult yet uplifting. Ultimately, it is a harrowing and inspiring account of how to survive seemingly hopeless circumstances and succeed in America. His journey has an uplifting message for present-day America, where immigrants are often reviled and immigration itself is denigrated. It reaffirms faith in the United States' future as a great nation. Indeed, it puts forth that the 21st century will be an American century that embraces all cultures. Still the Promised Land. We now return to Eleanor and Robert. 
You've talked about communities demanding change. Diarrhea is the most widely known disease linked to contaminated food and water, but there are other hazards. Tell us about these other hazards and and given them, why hasn't there been more of communities in fact demanding change? Well, sometimes they don't feel like they're empowered to or they're not the like if they're going to go to their mayor and their mayor isn't doesn't care or their mayor is worried, you know, their thing is building a basketball court or getting a road, it's hard to put your energy in that. So it's kind of has to some has to be an alignment of values and you know, if there's if it's a political figure, there have to be some political points to that mayor, for example, for getting people water. But I mean, once mayors and the mayors influence mayors, so what we've also seen is the mayors talk to each other. And when when communities are healthy and people are getting educated, they become more powerful. So a lot of our work is also education about what happens when you have these basic services in place. What's the social progress that you can expect for your community, Mayor Robert? <laughs> so that is also really, really important and getting the, um, bringing, empowering those leadership voices. And oftentimes what we see is leadership voices develop where there hadn't been and, so, and the women are pretty influential here because they know where the water sources are, the good ones and the bad ones, the ones that make people sick and not. They can't sometimes tell you why they're good or bad, but they know the good or bad. They know which ones are seasonal. They want the toilets for their own safety and dignity. There's all kinds of health problems that develop if you can't go to the bathroom during the day and you've got to wait till you go at night to go out in darkness because you don't want anyone to see you. Well, that can you imagine holding it all day long? I mean, that's horrible. And health problems, carrying 40 pounds of water on your head in a, in a jerry can. So, and those elements are, again, part of when people get self-enlightened and they're like, oh, I don't want that anymore if I, if I have a choice. And so that is also really powerful about shifting the status quo from something that's, this is what we, this is our fate, this is what we were born into to like, oh, maybe we have, maybe we can actually change this and and uh, you know, have better opportunity, and really motivated by income, right, and jobs, and getting money for their families, and this is critical to that. Sure, and you mentioned how influential women are, and really throughout human history, it's been largely a woman's job to get water for her family. Uh, in fact, I watched your TED Talk titled Why Water is a Women's Issue, uh, in which you describe just how physically strenuous it is to fetch water every day. Uh, tell our audience about this. Why has this responsibility not been shared? And has it hampered making clean water and sanitation really accessible to everyone? Yes, definitely. I mean, it's often relegated to women and children because the man's supposed to be out tending the fields or working or doing something in a different space, not the domestic space. Domestic jobs are often the women and, and children. So commonly, it's a couple of kilometers, several hours to and from a, a wherever the water is. And then, yeah, so picking up a 20-liter, we call it jerry can as a typical or bucket or whatever you put your water in, and carrying on your head is often the most efficient way. But that's like putting a child on your head and walking for a couple hours. I mean, we couldn't do that. I couldn't do it for five seconds. But that just becomes the norm, and it is really... Your body's not built for that, and it's not meant to do that. That is um, a major issue that is not well studied and not talked about much. 
what's more often talked about is the water quality issues and the diseases you get from waterborne disease, but there are all kinds of physical issues as well from lack of water and toilets. Just to follow on that, there are positive social and economic benefits to removing this endless water trail. Tell us about how lives are changed when clean water is in fact accessible. Yeah, I mean, it is pretty amazing. I've been now in, in this role seeing communities before and after. I mean, it, water does change everything. If you go and hear stories, and I, I often will ask, you know, what, what, what's, what's different now in your community of El Naranjo or wherever the community we're in? And first, it's the time. It's a huge factor. Getting your time back is like, wow, I have time now. And then the kids going to school. I mean, education is the key to getting out of poverty. So getting kids more education is really important when they have that time available to go to school and stay in school. And I think this community, for me personally, one thing really motivating is finding those opportunities for people who didn't have a leadership role, and it's often the women, to be able to influence and change their community because this is something that's near and dear to them. Now you have all kinds of social stigmas. If the men let the women, if the husbands let the wives go and be part of social change. But we have seen these things happening. And we can play a role. Like we can do trainings where you have, and we will say, you know, men and women have to come. We need gender parity in the room to do the training. And there are certain ways we can influence being socially, uh, culturally sensitive to get both men and women in the role of taking ownership of their water and sanitation. Understanding water resources is a huge part of changing of communities. So knowing where the waters come from, which they generally know, but keeping the, the watersheds planted and so they, the water replenishes with the rain and such, that's something that a lot of communities have been learning as, they, as we help develop their water sources. And so what happens is the kids now, this new generation, you know, being born in the last 10 years or so, they don't have some of those challenges. So they do have more ability to learn skills and stay in school and go to school and be healthier. And then you hear about, we don't specifically collect a lot of data on the health outcomes because we we work really on the water sanitation data, but we know from speaking with our communities that the drops in diarrhea is the biggest one, right? So many people are not as sick anymore. And even if you go to visit, you don't see people lying around in the back on a cot and things like that that we would see in the past. So health, and when you're healthy, you can go work in your fields and you can go to market and you can do all the things that you wouldn't do. And then the, I think the thing we didn't quite expect was once that is um, sells itself, the, the benefit of water, and, and in this case specifically water, then there's like, oh, well, if I could really get some water, I could have a better livelihood. Like if I grew watermelons or if I was, you know, uh, had some kind of other marketable income. So then there's where you would never think people have money. You know, this is our population is less than $2 a day, the base of the pyramid. But people start being really innovative on kind of their business models and how they could even be make more money if they could develop a new business line. And sometimes that has to do with often agriculture, so water comes into that. And so that's pretty interesting and amazing too because you can see the sparks of entrepreneurship as well. And in talking about communities, you've determined that nonprofits really can't be responsible for providing clean water for communities. It's the communities themselves 
that really must become self-sufficient and not become reliant on outside forces. Yours is really unique among global water charities. Tell us about your work in bringing together, as you mentioned, entrepreneurs, community members, and local governments to build and deliver water and sanitation services. Yeah, so first, just to touch on how, how we work as a global organization, we're about 200 people and 170 or so are, are nationals of the countries. So Denver here, we're back office. We do fundraising, marketing, finance, me, HR. Um, but our people actually doing the work are local. So if I go to visit, I, you know, I'm, I'm go to a special meeting or I go see some inauguration or I'm not, and none of us in Denver, I would say, are integral, integrally on the ground doing the work. That was our old days. So imagining that situation that Water for People employees are there teaching how to set rates or teaching how to do a master plan for a new water system and really teaching those local community members, giving them skills to take ownership of their own system. And you go and you meet, like this is what happens when I go, I'll go meet the local water committee. I mean, it is their, it is theirs. They totally own the system and they'll tell you in detail how everything works from the watershed to the homes because a lot of now really pushing for household, the customers want household connections, definitely in Latin America, but even in Africa now and India. So like they know from the, you know, cradle to grave, we would say, but from the beginning to the end, how everything works and all the parts and pieces come together and who's integral in, in the water system, who's paying the rates, who's not paying the rates, who got their water cut off. A lot of systems are metered. So it's an equity issue. We have which chlorination systems are working. They'll tell you everything, and we are in, we're just like supporting where there are gaps, even our local teams. So in the that entrepreneurial element is really exciting. So we've taken that into when we work in the more, especially when we're getting into peri-urban slums, where we're moving from rural to urban. The sanitation market is like it's like a mess. Literally, there's outside a, in a major city in Africa, outside the Seward Central Business District where sewerage might be 5 to 10%. There's millions of people living in non-sewered areas. So there's literally shit everywhere. You might not see it until you really look, but it's there. So it's about getting those services set up where the government isn't able to afford sewers and won't ever build sewers in these areas. The master plan for some cities is, you know, not, is not sewer sanitation forever. But finding those business opportunities. So we've been developing another model specifically for sanitation of getting entrepreneurs that want to do a small business. So they have some sort of business experience, but it's not sanitation. We'll do the training. So there are kind of four lines of business. There's the toilet sellers, all different toilet products. Some they will start door to door, then they'll get enough money. They'll open a shop and they'll sell different. You, know, you can picture that if it's a squat toilet, the different types of, is it concrete? Or is it porcelain? Is it plastic? There's all different price points, all different styles. And you get into tiles and different tanks and you can, you can go crazy, but the toilet sellers have all those products. Then there's the pit emptiers. So whether you have just a pit, like a latrine pit or a septic tank, someone's got to empty it sometime. If you're especially in an urban area, in a rural area, you can dig another hole, but not urban. And then there's the, the treatment operators. That might be the only municipal asset. We're helping build these decentralized sludge treatment plants. And then there's the biosolids repurposers. So all that Shit gets repurposed to something with either uh, uh, value for energy or nutrients for fertilizer. So depending on what the local market, if they want compost or if they want a soil amendment or if they want briquettes for cooking, that's another entrepreneur. Or sometimes they're 
one business will do all those things, those four. So that's something that's really been taking off a lot lately, especially in Africa and India. And really exciting. I mean, I, this is something especially for me coming from a wastewater background that finds this pretty compelling because the, the need is so great and uh, it, uh, it's, it's more complexity when we get on the sanitation side. But bringing business models in is a natural fit and government will always support, but they're still busy getting water services. And so we do find, we do government partnerships as well as um, business partnerships on the sanitation side. And Eleanor, how do we make sanitation and water systems sustainable in the long run? First, it starts with that feeling of ownership. Like someone's got to feel like it's their business or if it's government, it's those are their assets and they're, they're the ones who are responsible for them. So creating that ownership and empowerment and then understanding what it takes to actually keep a system running. So we do spend a lot of time training on, you know, cost in, cost out. What, what, is, the, what is the rate you need to charge your customers? And what what's often happens where we work is we'll go somewhere where maybe they have some sort of water system or even if it's a brand new one, they'll say, well, people can only afford to pay, you know, three soles a month for water service. Well, first, that's, really? Are you sure? You know, that's what people believe. And then you kind of have to go through and say, well, if we're only going to pay this much, when it costs 10 soles a month, it's not never going to work. So you have to really educate on why. Um, first, you have to prove you can give quality service, and then people value that service. They're paying more for their cell phones, even in the middle of nowhere, than their water often anyway. So, but when people start to value and rely on, on good quality water that's there all the time, they'll pay more, and it's just, it becomes more important to them. But getting over that hump is what, it's, what people think they can afford and what they think it should cost versus what it really costs is a major effort for us. And then once people understand that, they're, the willingness to pay and there's, then there's no resentment either. It's like, oh, this is what it costs my water, and my water's great. So that's a big challenge. And then keeping that water, the quality up, keeping that level of treatment when it's needed going is also critical to success. Hmm. And in talking about the entrepreneurial element, bringing in business models, taking ownership, uh, ultimately awareness. Well, on these vital notes, listeners can find out more online at waterforpeople.org and on social media. Eleanor, all the best to you and the entire Water for People team with your crucial work and impact. Thank you so much, Robert. And it was great speaking with you and sharing a little bit about Water for People. Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources are available at our website, innovatepodcast.org. Innovate is produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and by Arch Street Press. For PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, this has been Innovate. Innovate.